Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our most recent interview, which was recorded in June of 2022. Our talk is hosted by Edward Dodson and Jeffrey J. Smith. Jeff received a linguistics degree from California State University. Mr. Smith is a Georgia scholar and social justice activist who promotes Georgia's policies. Mr. Smith is the author of Counting Bounty, a book that examines the economic value of land and all of the Earth's natural resources. He served as the Director of Education at Basic Economic Education in San Diego and was the Chief Editor at Progress.org, a blog that promotes progressive policy prescriptions. Try saying that three times as fast. Jeff also published The Geonomist, which won a California Green Light Award. He has helped the city of Portland conduct research on new transportation policies and is a member of the International Society for Ecological Economics. Mr. Smith joined us to discuss how he helped form the Green Party in California, how progressive activist groups can build sustainable political momentum, and how universal basic income may not go as well as some economists think. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Welcome to Smart Talk. Thank you very much, Ed. It was great to be here. And first up, uh, I'd like you to tell us when and how you first were introduced to Henry George's writings and how this led to the position you held with basic economic education in San Diego. Okay. Um, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to add a little bit to my uh, background. I think I've written the most cited Georgia's academic paper ever, and it's over 25,000 citations. It's the one about funding mass transit with um, land value. And um, that's high for uh, a social studies paper. Laboratory science, they get many more hits, but um, 25,000 is, is quite a bit for economics, history, things like that. And the other, the other thing is, I was also a charter member of the Society for Ecological Economics. And you, you know some of those people. Uh, Gary Flo later got involved. And um, they were real sympathetic to our particular cause too. Um, they seem to have drifted away from it like everybody else. But um, I think they'll come back. So what happened to me I was living in Southern California and moved from Laguna Beach to San Diego, not that far apart. But when I um, updated my address for all the groups I belonged to, mainly Sierra Club, back then they had phone books. And in that section in the yellow pages was something called Land Equality and Freedom, LEAF, you might recall it. And um, I'd like Leaf. the name, didn't know anything about it. But I contacted them and they were a Georgia's group. I didn't know at the time, but they challenged normal ownership of land and normal ownership of land can be very destructive. So I welcomed that challenge. Now, and, would you, were you already thinking along those lines when you first came in contact with the people at basic economic yeah, education? I was really unhappy with both left and right. And I believed in markets, but I didn't believe in license, anything goes. And 
you know, if that's your land, you get to pollute it or anything like that. And as an activist, you actually heard uh, wealthy landowners and wealthy corporations say things like that. So, um, yeah, I joined Leif and learned about George and learned about George's economics and was quite excited about it and just puzzled why it didn't catch on. I just kept thinking about that, thinking about that. And I, I think it's because, well, if you look at progress and poverty, Henry George himself didn't mention taxation until page 406. And whenever you bring up taxes, you bring up tons of baggage and it obscures the whole picture and people can no longer see, see land, see land rent, or anything else you're talking about. It gets put into a different frame, the frame of taxes. I, I, I think that's a stumbling block for us. Well, so that's how I got into it uh, from the environmental movement. And this is so long ago, there were prominent Georges who, who um, combined the environmental movement with uh, the left. I remember being called a communist when I first joined the Georges because I was an environmentalist. But um, any environmentalist worth his salt is neither left nor right and should be pro-market because the market is an organic social structure that operates much like the rest of an ecosystem. So yeah, some come around to that, but not a critical mass yet. It, it, it takes a good deal of time spent with people who are thoughtful and not ideologically uh, fixed in their thinking. Uh, it, it's yeah. my experience. Yeah, and, and, and there are plenty always... of people who are like that. The problem is that you, you run into many more who are not. <laughs> You're right about that. Please do not confuse me with facts. Yeah. I have my belief system. Exactly. Well, that's why Thomas Kuhn in Structure of Scientific Revolutions said it's always the youth who bring about a paradigm shift because their minds, not every young person, but there's a lot, of, a lot more questing minds when we're that age. And, um, but the thing is, a lot of people will agree, but they won't stick to it because um, any ideology needs to have popular support, some certain percentage. And we're nowhere near that, you know? So people give us mouth, lip service and move on. No, I, the facts are that what was once a fairly rigorous social movement has uh, fallen into becoming a community of like-minded like people. Yeah, exactly. But I, but I do see that, that the message that Henry George was sending in his writings is, is starting to find an audience among younger, younger people. And perhaps that's because they're feeling very pressed and stressed by the you know, current economic and social situation. They're looking for you know, answers different than they're getting from the left or the right, or in, in our mutual experience with the Greens. Yeah. I, mean, I would be interested to, to know a little bit more about your experience with the Green Party in California and how the Greens dealt with, for example, the the uh, support for Prop 13 and that 
you know, dramatic change in, in tax policy in California. <laughs> God, horrible. Um, okay, so I was a prominent environmental activist in San Diego and Greens at that point, this is like what, 1980, uh, there was just a, you know, a couple dozen around the whole country, but one of them happened to be a San Diegan, uh, a woman who was moving out of San Diego and wanted somebody to take her place. And so she contacted me and I was already sympathetic to the notion of a Green Party and um, told her that I would like to contribute green economics to the platform. And if that were the case, I'd be happy to organize. She said, yeah, sure, we don't even have any economics yet. So it'd be great. And um, so being um, a competent activist, I organized it. And the first meeting had like 100 people come. But um, it was really hard to get that initial group to be pure green in the sense of, well, we had rotating roles, we had gender balance, we had all kinds of idealistic practices, and um, most people couldn't adhere to them. And it got down to actually just me. It was reminded me of the Chinese uh, revolution when Mao Zedong got down to like nine people before he got up to you know, hundreds of millions. And I thought I'd give it one more shot. And I tabled an event at the state college and one guy joined, but he was the right guy. He saw it the way I saw it. He was dedicated. He wanted to adhere to the principles and together uh, we made it grow and it became bigger than either the LA Greens or the San Francisco Greens, bigger than both of them combined. And the Green Party was so blown away that they um, made as a national pamphlet this essay I wrote about how to organize a, a Green Party. And it was a lot of fun, very successful, did a lot of fundraisers, adhered to the principles, not left nor right, rotated roles, gender balance, all the rest of it. And they had four pillars at the time. Right. Each, each one of them could match um, tax reform and, and subsidy reform along our lines. So um, we, the, my, the group I started, and, and Gary Flo was part of that, but then he left and uh, I was pretty much on my own. But um, I was really a believer. And so I, I, I uh, stepped down because that you're supposed to rotate roles. Uh -huh. And the people who took my place, eh, they didn't step down when their turn ended. So that's politics for you. But um, they did leave the Georgia's tax and I would add subsidy uh, planks in the platform. And we passed it at the state level. And then um, Greens are supposed to be not left or right, but pretty soon in America, you can't say you're left. You can't say you're socialist. You can't say you're communist and have any chance of winning. So they, they infiltrate, not in a mean way, but um, so they'll infil infiltrate the Greens or infiltrate the feminists and whoever else and um, push their agenda. So they didn't understand the land tax. Nobody does really, very few do, and pushed it out of the platform and pushed me with it. So um, 
I thought that we could be more effective taking some other routes. I mean, I like Alana Hartzog, you know, I also talked to um, Nader, Ralph Nader, and he agreed. He didn't do anything, but, you know, he agreed with us. So well, that's that's sort of the the common response. You talk to anyone who's reasonable in their thinking and they see the merits they see. Oh, yeah. But then they, they discount the political potential of adopting the yeah. reforms that are so essential. And it is very frustrating for those of us who who have been activists in our lives. And it's one reason why I've pretty much withdrawn from the Green Party in New Jersey, because it's moved very much to the left in uh, and some of the some of its policies I fully embrace, but um, in terms of economic policy, I think the Greens uh, are missing missing a lot of what is important to everyday people. Yeah, you know, in the beginning, the Greens had a, a speechwriter for Nixon, and later uh, one for Reagan. It truly really was neither left or right; it was balanced. And had strong market elements, strong libertarian elements, and um, the left got rid of all that. And they're they're not doing any better than any other leftist party. Well, well, Jeff, you, you've added good context to your early, you know, years and your, you know, your thinking, the development of your thinking. So, you know, uh, I've known you now for a long time. We've been to many conferences together. We've had long conversations about what works and what doesn't work. We've both been involved in education and activism, and we've both embarked on trying to uh, reach people by our writing. Um, I have to say that you've been more successful than I have, but but uh, you know this this latest book of yours that published in 2019, Counting Bounty. Um, you know, how did you come up with the idea? What has been the response so far in terms of, you know, public acceptance? Or uh, have you gotten some constructive criticism that's been valuable to you? What's, what's happened? Well, not a whole lot has happened. I really like the book. If for no other reason, it's got a thousand footnotes. And if you ever wanted to see where this information comes from, about the big picture, about um, real estate, corporations, banking, the environment, whatever. I mean, you can't go, it's like having a library in one book. And, um, but uh, I, I wrote it, I tried to write it in the genre of um, popularizing science, not a polemic, not an argument, but just um, presenting some interesting facts that would get the reader to think. And I tried to be lighter and airier and non-academic and engaging and all that stuff. But um, it, hasn't, it has not caught on. Um, another Georgist, you know, Phil Anderson in Australia. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he wants to um, co-write another book and boil mine down to like, you know, half of what it is or maybe less and be part of that book, which I'm happy to do. He hasn't been able to find the time to do it yet, but it, it's on his plate. And if, as, you, as you know, he, he's a um, stock trader. And he yeah, we've interviewed Phil on Smart Talk and, oh, and okay. discussed 
you know, his work, which continues and I receive his, his updates regularly. Yeah. Um, so he's, he, he's spending all of his time with his team, you know, really yeah. monitoring the global economy uh, with a microscope and, yeah. and providing his subscribers with, with the unique insight into what's happening into, into the economic cycle. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's quite that's really quite successful. And I'm really pleased he's one of us. Well, there, there, there's the interesting enigma, and that is so Phil is providing insight for people to profit by their, an understanding of the economy how to translate that into the change in public policy that would allow all people to prosper is the, is the real challenge. It's in part an intellectual challenge and in part a moral challenge. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the tax thing since the days of Henry George and for a couple of decades after, um, I, I see it as a dead end. People just do not warm up to taxes. I mean, you can say tax billionaires and, Get a lot of agreement with that, but that's not George's in the least. So uh, my tact and what led to writing the book was try to show people there is a surplus and it's due to society. So we should treat it as a commonwealth. But the last part was just at the very end of the book. I just wanted to demonstrate the um, surplus first. And I used every official and academic source you could possibly find, everything from Lincoln Institute to um, the BEA, Bureau of Economic Analysis. And, um, you know, it's really, really interesting what, what you find. I don't know if you knew this, but the BEA at one point said rent was like 2%. And they did this bait and switch thing. They defined rent close to how we define it. And then to measure it, they extrapolated from tax returns by landlords, which greatly, greatly, greatly diminished what rent would be. And you just have to wonder, why would the federal agency in charge of measuring the economy would pull a stunt like that? I mean, it's mind boggling. And the, you know the newspapers don't write about it. And another one, just about every single piece of legislation has to have money behind it. And most of that money is rent of some form or another. Uh, locally, it's usually land rent by developers and speculators. Nationally, it's usually um, bankers rent influencing um, a domestic policy and oil companies influencing foreign policy. So rent plays a huge role in politics. And there was a great book called um, Who Owns America by Dumhoff at University of California, Santa Cruz. And boy, you would have thought that would have just rocked the world, but no. And it was totally well-researched. And um, he gave every citation for every reference and just mind boggling that, uh, that kind of, even the left, our watchdogs, our complainers about the evils of the economy, evils of capitalism. Don't touch this stuff. That, that's a huge blind spot on their part. And the ones from benefiting from it, they see it, but you know, keep tight-lipped about it. And uh, every now and then they'll pipe up, 
like that billionaire in San Francisco said he's paying his workers to pay landlords. Peter Thiel, you remember that quote? No, I don't know that. Yeah, it's in my book. A lot of great stuff like that that just goes over people's heads. And um, one of the hugest facts from this research that's in the book that should blow people away, but does not. If you total all the natural rent, you know, surface land and resources, and all the privileged rent, mainly um, monopoly patent excess. Competition rent. limiting licenses. Yeah. Well, did you know, according to even capitalist uh, economists, 80% of the New York Stock Exchange value is patent rent. So anyway, if you, if you add up privileged rent and actual rent together, it's greater than wages and what we call interest together in the, in the GDP every year. And um, some see that. Now you can, there's this one lady, I forget her name. She's with, um, what's that group in England? Starts with an A, Catholic worker. Was that it? No, that's America. What was the one in England? Oh, I can't think right now. But um, yeah, she'll write about that. She won't measure it, but she will say most fortunes are pure rent which is nice to read. But uh, yeah, there was, a, there was a book written in the 90s and I, I, I don't remember the uh, author off the top of my head. I think his name was Short Swartz. And it was something like the $30,000 solution. Oh yeah, yeah, I knew that and, guy. And he calculated mm -hmm. that was the per capita rent from all the sources of rent that he could identify. Yeah, it probably was at that time. It's up to like $50,000 a year now. I'm, well, I'm sure it is. I mean, just since the 90s. I mean, I, I often talk about, for example, in my professional life, when I started to work at Fannie Mae in 1984, the maximum loan limit for a single family property was was about $85,000. By the time I retired in 2005, it had increased to over $400,000 and much higher in places like San Francisco or New York City or Washington, D.C., yeah. you know, which were defined as high cost uh, you know, communities. So that just shows you, you know, where the land price inflation occurred throughout that period of time. And you know that, that household incomes did not increase by that you know, oh, multiple. Uh, yeah. And in many cases, for people, it increased almost none at all. You know what, uh, at least when I was looking, had the highest land value of, of the cities. I mean, of course, as you mentioned, New York and San Francisco, third place was Boston. And um, it shows you the power of uh, public investment, zillions of universities there, and also shows you the power of density. You might know that they have, you know, really small blocks and then, um, interesting angled streets and it makes the downtown um, both livable and high value. So, and what do they call it? Um, Silicon something? What do they call Massachusetts? Um, the uh, Golden Triangle, I think, is that? No. That's North Carolina. See up here in the Northwest it's called the Silicon Forest. 
and you know, after Silicon <laughs> Valley, south of San Francisco, but Massachusetts was Silicon something because of MIT and all the others. I can't think of what it, what it was now. Oh, it's clear that wherever there's a high technology employment, land values have climbed to the highest in the nation. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. amazing when you read the stories about you know, people who have graduate degrees and cannot afford a home. You know, yeah. because the properties are so expensive. Yeah. yeah. There was one article I came across where this guy in, in, in a Silicon Valley tech worker, you know, making well over $50,000 a year, you know, $10,000 a month or whatever, living in his car. Yeah. Now, this is the state of America today that we're attempting to try to, you know, bring to light and get uh, our fellow citizens to understand and your work now uh, you know, is focused on that with, with trying to promote the citizen's dividend yeah. and, and the universal basic income. Yeah. I, 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 well, I'm, I'm, I not, have, I'm not doing the UBI, I'm just doing the citizen's dividend, but people who agree with me that rent should be the source, there's too few of us to support them so they, they gravitate to the UBI camp and yes. kind of leave rent behind. Which I, I don't know. I'm, I wonder if you agree with me in my analysis. When I've written about the universal basic income and its potential, the one thing I keep writing about is that, that the universal basic income will fail unless we do something to increase the subsidization of the construction of affordable housing, that it was simply you increase the disposable income of, of, of households at that level, and it will be capitalized into higher landlord charges for apartments. And they higher, got evidence higher, from that in, in Alaska. I mean, they have the oil tax, but they don't have a surface land tax. So you can pair up the people getting the dividend and having to pay more for uh, land. Even in Alaska, which huge expanse, not much concentration of population, but where there is, yeah, it pushes up the rents or selling price, either one. Yeah, and we know that. And it's just frustrating. We can't get others to understand it. Um, but it's why I, I switched focus from taxing to the, to the surplus. I, I think, um, you know, taxes make people feel like they're sacrificing, but if once they actually see and feel there is a surplus, and they have hope for a healthier economy for everybody, prosperity for everybody. Remember the title of George's great work, Progress in Poverty? And I look out my window here, and I'm gonna to try to show you before we end, there's a homeless encamped every single block. At the same time, there's all these new, big, beautiful buildings. Yes. Progress in Poverty within the same block, and only you and I get it. And you know, others are gonna hear this. And it's just mind boggling. Uh, yeah, there, there's, there's a tent city around, somewhere in every, every city of any size in the United States. Yeah. And I was surprised to see that on a trip to Canada, see, see uh, the, the huge number of homeless in Vancouver. And uh -huh. then it was explained to me that, that the uh, city fathers in in Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal pay uh, give the uh, homeless a bus ticket to send them to Vancouver. 
<laughs> yeah, that's funny. Is is isn't that an interesting public policy? Yeah, and maybe it's an exaggeration. I'm I'm sure, but but also it's a lot easier for a Canadian to be homeless in Vancouver in the wintertime than it is to be in Toronto or Ottawa or Montreal. Oh, that's very, but, but we have the same sort of thing in happening in the United States, you know, where, where, you know, it's easier to be homeless in the South or the Southwest where it's warmer. Yeah. There, but still there's not as much as where the home government is more, um, charitable and you know in some parts of the country people are not quite as tolerant of um, poor beggars but um, the thing striking about Portland is that it's rapidly growing it's rapidly getting wealthier at one end and rapidly getting poor at the other I mean it's just such a clear-cut illustration of what Henry George saw in his own time yeah, well, that, that had already been the case in 2007 when we had the last, you know, systemic crash, yeah. you know, where the concentration of income and wealth in 2007 had reached the same level that it had, it had reached in 1929. Yeah. And, and uh, it's just hasn't stopped, you know, getting worse ever since, regardless of who's in Congress or who's in the presidency. <laughs> sure. Uh, my um, newsletter you mentioned, um, the 2006 winter issue, advised anybody reading it to consider that as the peak of a land price cycle. And I don't know if anybody took my advice, but um, yeah, you could have saved or made a lot of money if you had. But um, I'll be doing it again soon. <laughs> I guess we all will. Just a couple more years. Well, uh, what about your what about your commitment to education? Uh, are you at all interested in getting back in the classroom? Um, you know, if I end up spending more time in Portland, yeah. But you know, it's really funny, Ed. Every place I ever lived and loved, I couldn't go back to once I left because places I like everybody else ends up liking too and they way push up the site values um grew up there in Annapolis Maryland can't go back to there moved to California can't go back to Santa Barbara San Diego San Francisco moved to the northwest can't go back to um Seattle or Portland so I don't know if I if I could come back here um I think people hopefully a critical mass and you really don't need that many for a critical mass you know you don't need a majority or anything close to a majority so with all this homelessness here and with the government actually doing nothing about it and you see all the signs of vandalism you walk down the street there's so many boarded windows so many folded um, local businesses and it's just you know tears at your heart if you understand the problem, understand the solution. So there might there might be some interest to um, teach. But when I lobbied, when I went to the state capitol in Salem, and um, the I guess you would call it the, um, community ta uh, revenue um, lobbyist, he agreed, and he said, "But the idea does not have legs." Right. 
in politics, you count noses. If you can't get it passed, why bother? So we really just have to get popular support. And like I say, need not be a majority, but if we could just show up with, um, you know, a, a whole posse of people who agree, um, invite them to events with a good number of people, get some high level endorsements. And we had all that after the conference here, what was that, 98? And then the trustees for the movement funds pulled the plug on that. And that was that. I mean, you, well, you can't go with other lobbyists and not be able to afford a, a microbrew afterwards. You know, they look at you funny if you're poor. So that was that. Building a social movement is a, is, is a, a challenge. And we have had the challenge of being an aging demographic. Um, yeah. And, you know, even... I mean, I can I know my own energy level has has declined over you know the last number of years. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's not like it was when I was thirty. Uh, nope. I still have a fair amount of energy, as you do, and many others do. But but there seems to be a a generation or almost two generations between uh, when you and I first became interested in Henry George's ideas. Yeah. and took on the mission as our own and the current generation where where there's now greater frustration with the status quo than there ever has been and and hopefully the young people will who have already gravitated to the ideas that we embrace will you know i i often i i, I often describe what's happened in history in in this way that uh, that Henry George came along after Thomas Paine, and we'll talk about Paine in a second, that Paine carried this torch of liberty with all these remarkable insights and ideas. And he came very close to influencing the world and, in, and bringing about positive change. Mm -hmm. But he, he lost his, his stature because he wrote The Age of Reason and attacked organized religion. And uh, that's a dangerous thing to do, as, as we know. Days especially. So when he died, the torch of liberty fell to the ground. The embers nearly die, dying out. And then along came Henry George yeah. and picked up the torch and ra raised it high. And it burned bright again for a while. And with George's death, there was no one with the same charismatic personality and leadership to come along to succeed him. Right. Until, until, and I've, I've talked about this recently, potentially Martin Luther King Jr. And the remarkable thing about, about King was that um, he was a friend of Walter Rybeck's. Yeah, through his wife. Walt, and Walt was able to slowly convince Martin Luther King that Henry George's solution to the problem of poverty was was a solution that king might consider embracing sure. so just just as the opportunity for the torch to be raised again occurred king is assassinated is murdered um, i don't know if it takes that kind of of person who somehow has the same impact on the rest of the world as you know as a pain and a, and george and a king or a gandhi 
or someone like that needs to come along. Um, but, yeah. but in the meantime, it seems like we have to continue to do what we do as best we can. And let's hope that um, the, the critical mass that you're talking about comes about. You know, I, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but um, I will note when King turned from politics to economics, that's when he got killed. Yeah. And then in Mexico, when Madero became president and, and taxed um, you know, the huge plantations, the huge haciendas, that's when he got assassinated. Um, when Kerensky was driven out of Russia, you know, he was pushing the land tax too. In England, they actually had passed it, but they shelved it in order to go to war. And um, in Germany, it was actually in practice in a few towns and the war wiped out all that progress. And uh, I won't say that's what caused the war, but it seems rational to think that the um, landlord class, the nobility, really had this in mind too um, when they did decide to go to war. Well, they were certainly looking after their own interests yeah. and, and looking for an opportunity to profit from instability. Yeah. And there's always the opportunity to profit during periods of instability. And yeah. those are willing to take advantage of, of the situation. Yeah. Um, uh, it just, unfortunately, twice in the 20th century escalated into a global war. Oh, I mean, hey, did you Francis, pardon no, me. The um, bestseller uh, recently, past couple of years, post-war. I don't know that. that. I don't know that. The author? It was a British guy who wrote it, and um, he just de detailed all the destruction. It was much more than I had ever known. It was just amazing. And although oh, he also detailed all the political movements before and after, it was, um, of course, he missed all our stuff. Because um, Georgia's between wars had a renaissance in Eastern Europe that um, was defeated by a coalition of left and right, which is kind of, that's a striking fact in history that gets left out too. Yeah, the, the leader of the German uh, Bowdoin reform movement, Adolf de Mosk, uh, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Wow. Uh, he died, as I remember, in 1935, but as far as I've been able to find, of natural causes. Yeah. Although, although had he continued to agitate, he may have found himself um, yeah. incarcerated <laughs> and worse, you know, from the, from the Nazis. Yeah. 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 So, so, Jeff, I, um, you and I have, have had the opportunity to work together a bit on the uh, play that you developed to, to try to bring Thomas Paine's uh, legacy to life. Um, there's a version of the play up on my School of Cooperative Individualism website and on my YouTube channel that we worked on together. And you've been working with uh, a number of, of uh, producers, actors, and others uh, on on promoting the a new version of, of Thomas Paine Bones. Is that still the working title? 
Yeah, and I want to thank you for recording it, Ed. And I'll, I'll update you. Um, I've been spending a lot of time in Mexico, more affordable. It's getting less affordable like every other place. A lot of gringos are coming down because of, all the, um, well, first it was Trump, but now it's just a lot of different fail social failures up here. Man, I, everybody should take a tour of Portland. You know, what was a pristine city is now just, you know, kind of almost bombed out in places and deserted, just amazing. So anyway, because I was spending a lot of time in Mexico, I wanted to see my work bear fruit in the town I was living in. And I had a the best male actor in town and I had a Mexican-American director and I had a local theater, but I also had an enemy. I didn't know it, but this guy um, with a bad reputation, but he has a column in the biggest English language paper in the region was really jealous of this project uh, mm. coming to fruition. And um, I, eh, anyway, because of him, everybody else backed out because they didn't want to uh, deal with him. And that kind of depressed me. But uh, I have actors in New York, actors here in Portland, and actors in Boise, I Idaho, who are really excited. The script has gone through a lot of refinements over, over the years. And um, so I think it's gonna take place. I contacted the agent for Liam Neeson. I thought he'd be a great pain. And that agent actually got back to me, but nothing's happened since. And I, I have to think of an excuse to bug him to push this forward. But if it can get on stage in New York, which is, you know, Broadway, so there would be a, definitely a theater review and people would take notice and that might get uh, Liam Neeson over the edge. And once we get pain out there, then we could get people interested in his ideas and maybe hopefully get George out there. But uh, that's my strategy anyway. Well, it's a strategy you and I share. I mean, in addition to my involvement with the, you know, Georgia's community, I've been involved with the Thomas Paine community for not quite as long, but I have, Thomas Paine was my intellectual hero from the time I've been a high school student. Yeah. And so, and so yeah. one of the first serious books I ever read was Rights of Man. Uh, and when you're when you're 16 years old uh, and you read Rights of Man, it, it, it really affects your thinking about about what you're being taught as a young person. Yeah. And certainly uh, once I read Agrarian Justice uh, some years later, it got me really thinking about what was wrong with the state of our society, uh, which uh, when I read when I first read Henry George and Progress and Poverty, I said, you know, immediately the light went off. This is Thomas Paine. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it, if, if Paine and George can become, you know, name, you know household names. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. Paine is more of a household name. But when you ask people, well, 
what what do you know about Thomas Paine? You don't get much of an answer. No. Oh, he was a Revolutionary yeah. War yeah. hero, or or he wrote Common Sense, and that's a that's a, about it. Yeah. But but um, but there's a there is a rich community uh, of of people who who I think are awakening to pay, the importance of pain and almost by extension, awakening to the importance of Henry George's contribution to, to, you know, intellectual thought and to moral, moral principles. Yeah. So, so for for those reasons, we can be optimistic and, and I, and I hope that your play brings you great success because if it brings you great success, that means it will mean that a much larger audience of people will begin to think more deeply about what pain has to say to them in his writings. Do you get uh, Google alerts for anything? Oh, yeah, sure. I get them for Tom Paine, and there's several every day. But um, I read it, I read about social change and try to persuade Georges to be as smart about social change as they are about economics. I don't get anywhere there either. But well, you've read- tried to teach me, uh, <laughs> and I'm an old dog. I, I still try to learn new tricks when I can. Um, you know, but, but, uh, we each have our own styles though. I think is what's, what's the truth, Jeff, even to every, so many people are earnest and we, we have our own styles and our own comfort zones. It's very difficult. The older we get, I think to move out of our comfort zone. Although I, uh, I have to say that the project that I undertook with you on Thomas Paine bones took me pretty far out of my comfort zone. Yeah, you did a great job with that. <laughs> you really did. Uh, um, that's my first acting job, Jeff. <laughs> you did great. Um, I Okay, one of the books I read about uh, social change is it used an analogy of termites. And what termites do for fun is pick up a grain of sand and drop it back down. But when by accident, they drop it on top of a previously dropped grain of sand, something clicks in their brains and they build an arch. And then something clicks and they build another. Anyway, they end up building a whole mound. So you can have all those grains of sand, but as long as they're scattered, which is what we are, um, we don't get any mounds. But once you get that critical mass of grains on top of each other, then you get these tall mounds. So it's just going to take a lot of, like Henry George said, you know, 20 people pulling on the same rope or whatever it was, you know, get more than 20 times the work done than a bunch of individuals going on different, different um, routes. So, yeah, we have to cooperate, cooperate in ways identified by scientists that actually succeed. And there aren't like you say, every Georgist is um, a lone wolf. What we need is social Georgists, cooperative Georgists, like in your name of your group, cooperative individuals. So if it's the well, I've, uh, I've, I've always thought that cooperative individualism as a, as a phrase or a term accurately described exactly the society and the social structure that Henry George was, was after. Yeah. And and I didn't you know come up with the term on my own. Yeah, I don't know. Do you know the history of cooperative individualism? 
Um, it, it is the basis for the founding uh, organizational structure of Fairhope, Alabama. Oh, okay. And I learned about it uh, during one of the Henry George conferences where the speaker was historian Paul Gaston. And he oh, yeah. was talking about the origins of Fairhope. And he said, you know, told us that it was built on the principles of cooperative individualism. And immediately it struck me as a, uh, a more appropriate way to attract people than by using the name of an individual such as Henry George. And so mm -hmm. when I established the School of Cooperative Individualism, I described Payne and George and others as architects of this philosophy. Yeah. So I, you know, I get. I guess I'm thinking in terms of the long term because uh, the movement for cooperative individualism has not blossomed as yet. <laughs> yeah. um, I. I guess. Let me let me ask you, you know, in in terms of now where your your experience of living outside of the United States and and in Mexico, what is your sense of the attitude of people south of the border of the United States generally? And are you know the challenges that they see us facing as well as the challenges they're facing economically and politically? Is, is there a sense of despair or is there a sense of there's a possible way, you know, out of, out of the problems? Um, you remember the dictator whose dictatorial rule led to the revolution in which over 15% of Mexicans were killed. But anyway, he coined this expression, pity Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. Did you ever hear that one before? No. Uh, he was being funny. I do find it funny. But um, yeah, egotistically, there is some resentment. But um, practically, they're very grateful. <laughs> they wouldn't, they'd be a wor much worse off third world country if their biggest trading partner didn't exist next door to them. So that we're the reason they have a middle class. We're the reason they have an upper rich class. And um, they know it and they appreciate it. And the hothead males who point back to the 1848 war or 45, um, pretty much get ignored. And um, so, yeah, the, I've never felt kind of animosity in Mexico that a Mexican would fear up here in America. Huh. Like, well, we bring them money and they take away our jobs, or at least in the mind of, you know, uneducated people. So it's people definitely a complex relationship under NAFTA, you know, with many of the, what's the proper term, Achilledora? Achilledora. Oh, my, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, as an environmentalist, I know there are concerns about the conditions uh, in the communities that that are have grown up on the border, the yeah. absence of health 
you know, health and safety of good clean water and sewer systems and all that. And plus the fact that the last article that I read that, that uh, because of the high cost of land and the high cost of housing for workers, that their net pay, even though they get a higher gross income working in those factories than they would elsewhere in Mexico, uh, after they pay the landlord, they're not in much, much better shape. Yeah. Is that consistent with your understanding? No, that's true. But um, one of the biggest sources of income in Mexico is America, the people sending back packets of pay. Right. And they're, they're, they're conscious of that. They don't want to see that come to an end. I went for a little jaunt into the countryside to um, see an eighth wonder of nature. It was a frozen waterfall. It wasn't really frozen. But the water was so rich in, in minerals, it was it looked like frozen water. It was pure white and smooth and beautiful and unbelievable. But um, when I got there, well, the road was so awful. A 20-minute ride was like two hours. I got to the village. It was nothing but huts. But on the roof of every single hut was a satellite dish. Huh. How yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> Blew me away. So, um, no, they really relish having us as a neighbor and trading partner. And when something ugly happens, um, like, like what's his name, um, Trump, you know, they just take it with a, a shrug. And I think it as, hurt me more than it hurt them that uh, he separated those families at the border. Yeah. And it hurts me more than it hurts that Biden has done nothing about it. So, so it goes. They're they're used to mistreatment, not just. As Thomas Paine would say, Jeff, the times that tribe men souls never really ended. Yeah, yeah, and and this is what we're this is what our challenge is still, and yeah. hopefully the work that you're doing and the work that many of the rest of us are doing together that we'll we'll be able to work closer more closely together as yeah. as time goes on and. Uh, and listen to some of the advice that you have to give to us based on your own experiencing <laughs> success. But hey, let me let me let me close out by saying. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.